your grace was deeper still how, how true that is His grace, grace is deeper than any of our sin could ever be or shame could ever be or rebellion could ever be His grace is sufficient in every respect take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6 beginning in verse 11 tonight as we come to the close of this chapter the last section uh, in this book we've spent about I believe this will be the 20th message out of this book 20 weeks spread out over a period of time that we have looked at this and examined this and it, I think it's been a good study as we've seen the Apostle Paul unfolding his struggle at seeing a, a young congregation who was struggling with error within it uh, seeing a young congregation that was being tested and being tempted to turn back to uh, to a false gospel to a polluted gospel and yet at the same time him being very loving but very firm that there is but one gospel there's not a lot of gospels out there there's not a lot of different ways to God there's not a lot of different ways to live in truth there is the truth the one truth the only truth and by its very definition it is absolute and it is alone and so he he clearly clearly specifies that to these Galatian Christians he he talks about being hurt I mean he's very honest and very open at a couple of times in here when he talks about what a pain it is to him to see them struggling over something that they ought to have a grasp of and and I can understand that I mean Paul is saying listen if if an angel comes from heaven and, and preaches to you a different gospel or even if I come back and preach to you a different gospel than what I preach, let them be accursed. Let me be accursed if I do that because I have told you the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it does not change. It does not vary. It will stand forever and ever. Now we live in a day where the gospel is being challenged over and over again. We live in a day where even the truth of Christ's salvific work and Christ's atonement and Christ's propitiation that we've talked about over several weeks now where that is being challenged as being archaic and being kind of bloody and being kind of uh, disturbing to some people that we need to go to a more light religion if you will a more light understanding of, of the faith so that we don't have to get so so dogmatic on these kind of ideas but Paul makes it clear that this is all there is there's nothing else for a relationship with God so when you depart from this you have departed from the true gospel and he comes back to that in these last verses he comes back to the cross and he wants us to understand and he wants us to see very clearly that it is the cross of Christ that is central to Christianity it is the cross of Christ and his work on that cross that brings all these things together that makes this a cohesive faith the resurrection makes no sense without the cross uh, the life of Christ makes no sense without the cross the future of the believer makes no sense without the cross the cross is central and that's why it is used as a, as a symbol universally almost for Christianity there are other symbols that have been used other things that have been done but almost universally wherever you find Christianity you'll find the cross now in America in some churches over the last few years the cross has been kind of downplayed it's been even removed I know one of the big mega churches up in the Chicago area 
several years ago, took all the crosses out of the church, and they said, we're just not going to base our faith on a cross. And they took them all out, and they're still out to this day. But you take away the cross, you take away the work of Christ. You take away the cross, you take away Christianity, and you substitute something else. Just like the Judaizers were wanting the Galatians to substitute something other than the pure gospel, and that's being done across our land today. Listen to these words as I read, starting in verse 11, and read through the end of this chapter, because this sums it all up pretty well. Paul says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that, you, so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Now, obviously, the last two verses are something of, of a, just a closing that Paul uh, ties this thing up with and, and says goodbye with, especially verse 18. But verse 17, he goes back. If you remember, back in the first part of this book, he talked about how the, the, the Judaizers were attacking Paul. They were questioning his loyalty. They were questioning his bibli, uh, biblical standing. And, and Paul just simply says here at the end, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Listen, I bear the brand marks of Jesus in my body. I've got the marks to show you. I've got the stripes from the beatings. I've been shipwrecked. I've been through sickness. I've had a lot of things go on for the cause of Christ as I've stood firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not going to cause me any trouble anymore because I know that I am Christ. He has branded me. I belong to him with clarity. And then in that last verse, simply, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. It's just a typical blessing of saying, listen, the grace of God be with you. Now go in peace and do what he's called you to do is basically what the apostle is saying. But it's those verses 11 through 16 where he really zeroes in on the cross, where he talks about rejoicing or boasting in the cross. And those are important verses. In verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing you with my own hand. Evidently, the first part of this letter was written by an amanuensis or a secretary. Uh, somebody was traveling with him. Uh, different people have been proposed for that. I mean, we know from the very beginning of Galatians that he says, The men that are with me, brethren who are with me, send, wor send words of greeting to you. Uh, you know, and, and so we know that there were those there with him 
who are ministering alongside him. And the, the view is that what he's saying is the first part of this book has been written by those men perhaps, but now he takes pen in hand. And, and his most believe that because his eyesight is perhaps that thorn in the flesh that he talks about to the Corinthian Christians, that's speculation to some degree. But we know that when he says, see with what large letters I'm writing you, that evidently for him to be able to see what he was writing, he had to write it out in large letters. He couldn't, he couldn't read normal print or normal handwriting. And so he wrote it out with large letters so that they would be able to read it. And this last part, talking about boasting in the cross and glorying in the cross of Christ, he wanted that in his own hand because he wanted no mistake and no misunderstanding to those reading it that this is coming from me, Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, the one who persecuted the church, the one who should have been shunned by Jesus Christ, but the one who was called by Jesus Christ, redeemed by Jesus Christ, and commissioned by Jesus Christ as an apostle. He wants his brand, he wants his brand mark to be on this letter just like the brand marks of Jesus are in his body or on his body because of what he's gone through. He belongs to Christ. This letter belongs to him and ultimately through him from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he makes that point to these people. Then in verses 12 through 16, he talks about this matter of rejoicing in the cross. He starts out in verse 12 by saying, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, and the key phrase there is in the flesh. In the flesh, those who want to who look good to other people, those who want to show off their spirituality and, and show off their, their understanding or their knowledge to some degree, well, they try to compel you to be circumcised. And circumcised there, we know what the ritual of circumcision is uh, for the young male child on the eighth day, and, and all of that was in, in part of the, the law, and part of that was the Abrahamic covenant. And we understand that. But here when Paul uses circumcised, he's not just talking about that one act. He's talking about really following the legal system of the law, following the Mosaic law, following and all of those things that flowed out of that. Remember, we talked about at one point that the, the, the Ten Commandments is the Mosaic law. That is the, the heart of it. But in the, the tweaking of it, if you will, in the amplifying of it, in the, the commentary on it, the laws became over 600 that had to be followed. And, and there were all sorts of dietary and all sorts of cleanliness laws and all sorts of ritual laws and worship laws and so these people are trying to get the Galatians to get back into that system and when Paul says here they want you to be circumcised while circumcision was a part of it for some of them for many of them it just meant getting back into the to the legalistic laws that predated the death and the very uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ the real thing Paul is making clear here in these last verses in this book is that there are two kinds of religion in the world and really only two kinds of religion. And we think, if I were to ask you tonight, now can you name me some religions? Undoubtedly, we could sit here for a while and all sorts of religions could be thrown out. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Confu Confucianism, uh, Taoism, Animism. I mean, we could go on and on talking about religions. You could even get smaller subcategories within the larger categories and we could talk about religions but in reality there are only two types of religion in all the earth the first type is the religion of human achievement and that is a religion of works a religion that says I will do in order for God 
to accept me. You see that on the front page of the newspapers every single day because Islam is a religion of human achievement. It's a religion of works. They have to pray five times, facing in the right direction, kneeling in the proper way, saying the formula, formula, formula of right words in order for them to be accepted before their God. They have to go through certain pilgrimages to Mecca. They, they have to do these things. And in, in radical Islam, they even have to be willing to give themselves their life in jihad so that they could kill the infidel in order to be accepted by God. How sick is that? It's a ridiculous thought to bring that upon a religion, but the truth of the matter is that is man doing their very best and trying with everything they've got to, to somehow please God, somehow make God happy with them, make God accept them. And that's a, that's a very extreme measure. But you've got others, Buddhism, that try to, 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 to earn favor with God by, by just sort of losing themselves. We talked about default, that, that uh, one sociologist said Western Christianity, and, and by that American Christianity, uh, was many times default Buddhism. They just kind of want to let everything go and just feel, and just concentrate on the internal and how they feel about themselves. Well, the, the truth of the matter is that is a religion of achievement human achievement and there are a lot of people even our Baptist churches today who think that you know I've, I've got to be there and we got to do it twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday night and I've got to give this much money and I, I've, I've got to do something else in order so God will not be angry with me and God will accept me I want to tell you something God does not accept you on basis of your of your attendance or on basis of your giving or anything else that you do he doesn't. So let me tell you, if you're trying to earn favor with God in that way, just stop it. Just quit. Now, if you're a child of God, born again by the work of Jesus Christ, there are certain things that will flow out of you that you will want to do according to Scripture. One is worshiping with the body. One is giving a part of what God has given you back in order for his glory to be maintained throughout the earth, to be spread throughout the earth. I mean, there is, a, there is a response of gratitude that comes out of that. But if you think dropping money in that offering plate every Sunday is somehow getting you a little closer to God accepting you completely and bringing you to heaven, stop doing it because you're damaging yourself. I'll never forget years ago reading a book by, by John Warwick Montgomery. It's long out of print, but I do still have my copy because uh, I just like having it sitting on my shelf because it shakes people up. And the title of the book was Damned Through the Church. And most people walk in, they look at that and say, whoa, what does that mean? What do you mean, damned through the church? He, the publisher made him kind of tone down the title a little bit. Uh, he wanted the title to be going to hell through the church. They said, no, no, we can't have that. So they kind of tried to tone it down a bit. But the point is this. There are a lot of people who are going to church every Sunday just to try to please God and never come to that point of absolutely saying, Lord, I, I can't do anything. I put my trust in you. And because your grace is drawing me, because your Holy Spirit is drawing me, I just commit myself completely to you. And I'm going to quit worrying about how do I make you happy. And I'm just going to receive the grace that you've given me. And... Then start living to his glory 
by his power and by his grace. You know, there, there's an old saying, people, you say, well, you know, he doesn't get, he, he doesn't really have it, I don't think, but it doesn't hurt him to go to church. At least he's going to church. M Montgomery's article in, uh, uh, argument in this book was, it, it may very well be hurting him to go to church. Because if he's there week after week after week, hearing the truth, and that, I guess, is predicated by the fact he's in a church that preaches the truth. But he's there hearing the truth week after week after week and never responding to the truth but always trying to just achieve favor with God. Then he's really heaping coals of judgment upon his own head because he's never surrendered to the cross of Jesus Christ. So there's the, there's the religion of human achievement that we would call the religion of works. Or there is the religion of divine accomplishment which is grace. The religion of divine accomplishment. That is, God has done the work, God has accomplished the work on the cross through His Son for His people, and He gives His salvation as a free gift. He does His salvation as He, he has accomplished it, and we don't earn it, we don't work for it, we just simply believe, have faith. The, this this religion of divine accomplishment is received not on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith. You know, some people have trouble with that, even in Baptist churches. Can I, is it really true that I can just believe? Yeah, that's all it, that's all it is. It's just believing. It's just trusting. But, but don't I have to do something? No, no, not it. God has accomplished it. God has opened your eyes to see your need for a Savior and has called you to himself. You just believe. But what if, what if I don't have works? Well, then you probably didn't really believe. But works are not to earn favor with God. Works are just an outworking of the Spirit of God at work in your life. That's why back in the, the fruit of the Spirit, he, he named what the fruit of the Spirit is. And he said it's, it's love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there's no law. He, he didn't say, now go out and try to do those things. He didn't say that. He said that's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit's in you, if the seed has been planted there, that is the fruit that will issue forth out of your life. And so we have the religion of divine accomplishment, or the religion of human achievement. Those who are desiring to make a showing in the flesh, they're glorying in the flesh, they're glorying in their works, Paul says in verse 12, so that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Glorying in the flesh involves several things. It involves trying to show off spiritually, to, to say, oh, look what I've got. Their egos are fed. They, they mask their sin with an outward show, and they want people to see their goodness. You ever know anybody like that? You ever been like that? I want people to see how good I am. Listen, I don't necessarily want people to see how good I am because I'm not all that good. I want people to see how great Christ is. I want them to see how great the cross is. But these, these Judaizers were showing off their spirituality and they were making a show of their own goodness. They were trying to look religion. They were showing off religious they were showing off secondly Paul seems to indicate here that they were doing this to avoid persecution that is that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ they can be religious without suffering persecution you can be religious without ever being persecuted but you can't be a Christian without ever being persecuted 
Persecution is a part of it. Because you see, the cross is an offense. The cross here stands, and it's talking about persecution for the cross of Christ. It stands for the total of Christianity. And, and Paul made it clear to the Corinthians, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, he said, listen, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, who are the called Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul says, listen, understand that Jews stumble over this thing. They're, they're troubled by this idea of a crucified Messiah. They, they, don't, they can't understand that. Gentiles, they also struggle over that. Greeks or, or Gentiles, they... It's foolishness to them that God would become a man and then go to a cross and die. I mean, that's foolish. God should come in with, in that day perhaps on a white horse, in our day maybe in a Learjet, and command his armies and have his tanks and his, his soldiers all commanded and come in and declare himself to be king, declare himself to be God. The cross is foolishness to Jews and Greeks and stumbling blocks to Jews. But the religion of human achievement doesn't offend anybody. You know, the whole power of positive thinking stuff that has belted its way into Christianity in our day, or possibility thinking by the likes of Robert Schuller, or just the your best life yet of Joel Osteen. That's all the religion of human achievement. That's all an offense to the cross. But it doesn't offend anybody. It makes everybody happy. So the religion of human achievement never does offend. Everybody's comfortable with it. Everybody likes it. But the cross always offends. It always brings hostility from those who are not in Christ. To accept the cross and to accept the fact that is to accept the fact that man is not what he thinks he is. To accept the cross is to accept the fact that man is not what he thinks he is. We think we're sufficient. We think we're able to do whatever we want to do. But to come to the cross is to say, I cannot do it. It bothers people. You saw that in Acts chapter 5. When the disciples were brought before the, the council and in chapter 5 of Acts, just listen to this, said, and when they had brought them in, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, the cross, upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as the prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him, who believe in him, who have trusted him. He said, listen, they were offended by the cross. They were offended by this idea of Christ's death. And Peter and the apostles said, well, it is what it is. And, and you have to understand that Christ came for that purpose. And there's life in him. 
in verse 13, he goes on to talk about the fact that the third thing they try to do, apart from showing off spiritually and avoiding persecution, is they're trying to cover up their own sin. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. <laughs> Imagine that. They talk about the law and how important the law is and you must obey the law. They don't even keep it themselves. They're just trying to gather converts. They, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh and, and cover up their own sin. You see, by loading up converts, they find false security that they must be right. Now, that doesn't sound familiar, does it? I mean, haven't you ever heard someone say, well, look how many are following us. We must be right. There must be something good there. Uh, we've got great numbers. We've got great throngs, you know. I mean, Baptists can even be guilty of this if they're not careful and deny the cross the whole time. But we must be doing what's right because great numbers are following after us. But there's a dichotomy here of what's on the inside and what's on the outside. And the struggle is that there is sin and there is pride and there is arrogance and there is a, a desire to look good in the eyes of other men and women. That's where the Pharisees were. Pharisees looked good. What did Jesus call them? Whitewashed tombs sepulchers so you're, you're a whitewashed grave on the outside they've got the stone rolled up there and, and everything the grass is growing around it and on the door they've, they've painted it white and it looks clean and pure and good but inside is just rotten stinking decaying bones he said to the Pharisees that's what you're like and anybody who tries to just wear a facade of religion and try to try to live by this religion of human achievement, that's what they are because they've got their sin and they're trying to cover it up without really dealing with it, without really repenting of it. Paul says those who come and try to lead you astray and those who come and try to deceive you, that's exactly what they're doing. But then in verse 14, he turns his attention to talking about the religion of divine accomplishment, glorying in the cross, faith in the cross and the work of Christ he says there in verse 14 may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world what a statement you know it's amazing to me that that the cross while it has become the universal symbol of Christianity kind of amazing that it has isn't it I mean that was an instrument of torture it, it was more than just an instrument of death I mean there were other ways to kill a man and execute a man other than the cross the cross was not a very quick way it was not a very I mean it never would have stood muster the ACLU today that's for sure because you know now you they, you, you can if you execute you got to execute quickly you got to so they don't suffer any so there's no no pain involved so they just kind of drift off to sleep never to wake up again how peaceful how nice the cross was horrible it took hours and hours of hanging there nailed to it nailed in such a way and hanging in such a way that your body my, with my bad shoulders I can't even hardly do it I feel pain 
but you, you hold it, you know, holding up in such a way that you had to pull up to breathe. And, and there was this feeling of, of asphyxiation. There was this feeling of smothering and suffocating the whole time. And that went on for hours and hours and hours. Not to mention the pain of the nails. It was just a very, very torturous way to die. And yet this torture instrument becomes the main point that Paul talks about to glory about and glory in and boast about. Why is that? It's for one simple reason. The cross accomplishes what nothing else could accomplish. The sacrifices didn't accomplish it. Circumcision couldn't accomplish it. Nothing could. The cross accomplished what nothing else could. God has set the standard. You can't change the standard. Many people in many religions today want to try to change the standard, but it can't be changed. It is the cross and, and, and coming to the cross and that being our altar, if you will, not the front of the church is not an altar, but the cross 2,000 years ago is the altar where salvation was won and accomplished. You cannot change that. trusting in him and trusting in his finished work. Most religions of human accomplishment are a lifelong quest and you ask most people you, in any of those other religions you ask them do you think that you will be with Allah or with your God when you die and they have to answer I don't know I hope so but, but I, I don't know if I'll be good enough. I don't know if I'll carry on long enough I don't know if I'll, I'll I don't know but I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can I'm trying to accomplish it Christ has accomplished it for all who believe the cross of Christ has accomplished it it's not a matter of it's not a matter of trying harder and being better and hoping that God will God tells us through his word especially I love how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John toward the end of that book when he says, I'm writing these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope. Not that you can surmise. Not that you can think, well, just maybe if I'm good enough and work hard enough, I can do it. No, I'm writing these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And the knowing is in the knowing of him and seeing his life worked out in and through your life. You know, some say, well, Jesus, this cross business, Jesus just came and died as an example to us. I, I read in the Lexington paper just a week or so ago, well, it's been long, about a month ago, one Baptist pastor from up in the Frankfurt area who said, Jesus died on the cross not to, not to atone for sins, but to be our example. And I couldn't wait to read that whole article. And basically what he said was, his example was that we should give our lives for other people. I thought, how foolish. I can't give my life for you. I mean, I, I can't, I, I, I could do it, but then you'd just stand there and say, he was absolutely out of his mind. Didn't accomplish anything. 
you know, it's kind of like, I've used this illustration before, I think, but it's, it's kind of like we're down at the lake this summer and, and all of a sudden I just look around all y'all and I say, let me tell you something, I want to show y'all how much I love you. As your pastor, I just want to prove to you my love for you and I want to leave you an example for you to follow and, and you say, okay, how are you going to do it? And I go and jump off the bridge and drown myself to show you how much I loved you. That was an example. But, but you're going to shake your head and say, he lost it. Didn't do anything. Now, if, if we're out the lake and, and one of you are, have fallen in the water and, and you're going up and down and you don't know how to swim and, and you're about to go under and the water's cold and, and, and there's a swift uh, current and, and I'm not all that great a swimmer, but I want to help you and I want to save you and so I dive in and I swim out and I pull you to shore even at my own peril and own danger. Now that ought to say, I love you. Jesus didn't die there just to be our example that we ought to give ourselves for other people. Jesus died there and accomplished a rescue that no other thing in all the world could accomplish. He rescued us, not from a sickness, not from a disease, but he rescued us from death. And the greatness of love is measured by the greatness of the rescue. So the cross is either the only way of redemption or the cross is the most senseless act of all history. One final thing Paul does here. He gives reasons why he glories in the cross. In, in, in these verses. He says in verse 14, I, I glory in the cross because it frees from the world's bondage. Verse 14, he says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is, the bondage has been broken. The whole world system that is doomed and damned and the world uh, you know, out there that, that calls for me and tries to clamor to get me to follow it has been destroyed, has been crucified to me, Paul says. And it ought to be to you and me. And I've been crucified to it. I to the world. The world is not our religious. The world is very religious. And it wants you to get into its religion. It wants you to follow its religion of human achievement. But the cross sets you free from that. When you become a Christian, you should lose your love for the world. Become a Christian, you'll lose your love for the world and all of its enticements to disobey Christ. If you love Christ and you love the cross, it overrides so much that is the siren's call to you and me, calling out for us to follow. And then in verse 15, he says, I glory in the cross because it accomplishes what the flesh could not do. Neither, circum, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Trace what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says we are now a new creation in him. It's not a, a law abiding or a law disobeying. It's not a matter of what I've done. It's a matter of what Christ has done in us to bring us into a new creation. All old things are passed away, and behold, everything has become new in the life of the one who truly comes to the foot of the cross. And then he says in verse 16, it brings salvation's benefits. 
those who will walk by this rule. Notice he uses the word rule there. Because the Judaizers were full of rules. Do this, don't do that. Live this way, don't live that way. They had rules for everything. Paul said, here's the rule. Here's the rule that is to be followed. And that's the rule of freedom in Christ. And those who walk by the rule of the cross and the death of Christ, those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In other words, those who come to the cross are the Israel of God. They're the true Israel. They're the true descendants of Abraham. They're the true children of Abraham and and, and descendants of Moses and descendants of David. They are the true people of God. Those who come to the cross and trust in Christ's work and His work alone. And upon them will be peace and mercy. Peace with God. You know, Scripture talks about how before we come to Christ, we're enemies of God, we're at enmity with God. But now, because of the cross, we who are in Christ have peace with God. But also we have the the peace of God that that goes beyond human understanding. The, The peace to face difficult situations and trials and tribulations and persecutions and whatever comes our way, the peace of knowing that God's in control no matter what, the mercy of God. We were a people who did not have mercy and now we have the mercy of God, he said to the Ephesians. I mean, it's, it's a matter of in the cross we find a new identity. In the cross we find a new glorying. And in the cross we have a reason to brag not about us but about him we don't brag about hey I'm smart man I, I got saved I, I, I was smart enough to do that no we brag in the fact that in my sin he loved me and he gave himself for me and he called me and he redeemed me we give the glory and the boasting and the bragging not to ourselves but to him who is worthy of that worthy of our, all of our praise and everything we have. Paul says, listen, the cross is central. Boast in it. And don't boast in anything else. Glory in it. Don't glory in anything else. Die in it. Die to the world. Be crucified to the world and let the world be crucified to you in the cross, not in yourself. It's not a try-harder religion. It's a trust religion. It's not a try-to-do-better religion. It's a trust-him-fully faith that says, you are my hope, and I want your peace, and I want your mercy, and I want to walk with you in fullness of life. Let's pray together. That sounds strange to a lot of contemporary Christians because we've been so mesmerized by bigger and better and 
bigger crowds and bigger budgets. We've actually thought that's all that mattered. What Paul is saying here is come to the cross, be cleansed. Come to the cross and quit trusting in yourself and trying. Come to the cross and know who he is. Father, we're grateful to you that well, you redeemed us from a law of human achievement, from a, from a religion of human achievement. You redeemed us by your grace, by your mercy, by the work of Christ on the cross. Father, we we rejoice in that. We glory in that. Father, help us to seek to see that we're not what we think we are many times, but we are who you say we are in Christ. Lord, help us see that we are crucified to the world. The world is crucified to us. Help us, Lord, to walk in it. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.